you're listening to Reba Radio, the podcast. From 18th to the 26th of November 2021, our annual inclusion festival took the form of a dedicated radio station broadcast live from the bookshop at the Reba's HQ in London, with me, Marsha Ramroop, the Director of Inclusion at the RIBA, hosting the discussions. Reba Radio, the podcast, is the speech-only content from that radio station, themed and edited for your easy consumption. We suggest you make your way systematically through all episodes from the intro to the end to help you effectively on your inclusion journey. We hope you enjoy it and find it useful and applicable. Shani Danda is an award-winning disability specialist listed as one of the UK's most influential disabled people. She's also an actor too, which we'll dig into in a bit. We've known each other in the EDI space for, for a few years now, uh, EDI, Equity, Diversity and Inclusion. And when I knew I was going to do this radio station, she was one of the first people I called, only to then discover, Shani, you used to work for the RIBA. Yes, that's right. So it's it's such a nice, uh, it's a nice feeling to be back, come back, with, you know, in familiar territory. So thank you. So if I can start by asking you, who is Shani Danda? And <laughs> what's your relationship with the word disability? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess I should start by saying I'm a very proud Brummie uh, <laughs> who now lives in London. And um, I work in the space of disability inclusion. And I'm really passionate about representation uh, and intersectionality. Um, I myself am a South Asian disabled woman. So I experience the world through a very unique and intersectional lens. But what that also means is uh, I'm constantly judged, uh, you know, upon my appearance. And that might be a consequence of, you know, my uh, condition, my race, my gender. Or it might be, um, you know, some of them or all of them. I guess I don't really know. Uh, and, yeah, that's so I, I work in the space of, of inclusion, helping businesses and brands to be more inclusive. And just make the world a bit fairer to live in. So how did you come to work at the RIBA and what's been your involvement with architecture? Okay, so um, I went to uni and did a degree in event and venue management. Um, Now, I was always one of these kids who never knew what she wanted to do when she was older and always envied the other kids that always knew what they wanted to do um and that was because uh, I went to a special needs primary school because of the condition that I was born in and a lot of my childhood was really focused on um my health I did I get I really didn't have time to think about what my adult life would look like so never in a million years did I ever think I'd be going off to uni but um, you know, worked hard and I just chose a subject that I enjoyed. Um, and I guess what I didn't realise, Marsha, choosing a, a career in event management was so aligned to my skill set. So I have a short stature. Uh, I'm three foot ten in height. I'm about the height of a four year old. And my whole life has been lived through this lens of always thinking outside of the box, always thinking creatively, whether that's how, you know, how I'm going to reach my kitchen cupboards to how I'm going to travel to 
how I'm going to buy and wear clothes, you know, the simple things that I guess many of us take for granted. Um, and that's what you need to do when you're an event manager. You need to be creative, resourceful, resilient. You need to um, go above and beyond and be, yeah, be really creative. So that's how I came to work at Reba. I joined as a, I think it was the title, I think, was like events and professional development coordinator. So I used to um, organize CPD, the awards events. Uh, public programs a whole mixture of stuff as well as working on national uh, programs as well and you know really loved it I really really loved it. So coming now to your involvement in um, you know disability activism for want, for want of a better uh, phrase and you know we look at I, I look across the architecture sector and it became really clear to me really early on how quiet the disability voices in the architecture sector. I mean, I shared a, a stat earlier about only 1% um, of architects have declared as as being um, dis, having a disability when it makes up 18 to 20% of the actual UK population. So, so really disproportionately quiet. Um, but we don't really have, or th- there's a sense that, you know, we, we don't have people with disabilities coming into the profession, that doesn't seem that that's quite right. Uh, and meanwhile, there's an, an unemployment crisis facing disabled people. So, you know, what, what, what do you think is going on there? I mean, what's your experience of, of, you know, having a disability and not being able to find work when, you know, people appear to be crying out for, for good people? I think it's really, it's a really sad state of affairs, isn't it? The data is saying that, but... I think we have to look, you know, we definitely have to scratch the surface there. So um, it's it's no surprise that, uh, you know, disabled people are finding it very tough to get employment. You know, I, I call it a crisis, if I'm being completely honest, and especially when 25% of UK employers are, are telling us that they're less likely to employ someone with a disability and then 60% are concerned whether a disabled person could do the job. Is it any surprise that we're not seeing disabled people across many different industries and sectors? And if we just look at architecture, for example, are disabled people going to be encouraged to take that up as a profession if they don't see disabled people succeeding in this industry? You know, are disabled people even going to consider it Um, as an opportunity if workplaces and everything that involves you know being an architect isn't going to be accessible to them but also I think we should really talk about how do we actually define disability and and what does that actually mean Um, so the easiest way to understand it I think is to really break it down strip it right back and essentially People are born with or acquire conditions or impairments and disability is an experience. So you are not born disabled. Disability disability is something that you experience when you're faced with a barrier or a bias. So despite the fact that I was born with a a condition and I have a short stature, it doesn't disable me 24-7. It's when I'm faced with things that aren't accessible to me or, you know, uh, bias in in my ability, for example, and and just to help to bring that to life, at the age of sixteen, I had applied for over a hundred jobs, uh, and I didn't hear anything back. And 
it wasn't until I removed that one sentence from my covering letter, which said, I've got a condition, I don't need any adjustments. Um, and I thought I was I was doing the right thing. You know, I was acknowledging the fact that I've got a condition. It's very visible. I can't hide it, nor do I want to hide it. I thought, hang on, you know, let me be the person to remove all the awkwardness here. Because, you know, when I get called in for an interview, that the interviewer might feel awkward. So I was doing it for the other person more so than me. And um, yeah, so at, at the age of 16, I had to learn a very harsh life lesson. So so that's what we mean when we talk about disability. And, and that 1% stat, you know, it just can't be right because one in five of us in the UK population uh, live with a condition or an impairment. That's 22% uh, of the overall population. So I think maybe if we ask the question a little bit differently or if people had a broader understanding of disability, a more holistic view, rather than just looking at it from a medical perspective, we would probably see an increase in those stats. Uh, and that experience that you talked of there about, you know, applying for jobs, um, I had I was speaking to a deaf architect who told me that this was exactly his experience where, you know, he was declaring, I'm, you know, I'm deaf. And it's when he removed that information that he got invited for interview. And then when he went for interview, then he wasn't given the opportunities because they said, oh, you didn't declare that you were deaf, which is, you know, in itself, uh, well illegal probably yeah. uh, in terms of that discrimination that but it's real and it's happening now so even though this happened to you you know a few years ago and probably you still would if you weren't in the position that you were in um that uh you know it's it's um it's happening now in architecture yeah. in the built environment um because of this prejudice around the word and and people feel that they can't explain but uh, there's no sense. I mean, sometimes people saying that they have or experiencing disability is is simply just to declare it, not because it's going to impact on their ability necessarily to do any work. Um, so, you know, what what do employers need to think about when when they are faced with someone who's declaring or being upfront about, yeah, I have a disability here. What do they need to de deal with there? I think that uh, first things first, we need to acknowledge the fact that 20% of the working population are disabled and eight out of 10 disabled people acquire their disability during their working life. So the chances are that disability is an issue that we are all going to come across, you know, in our workplaces or whether we experience it ourselves. So we, we can't keep being awkward about it. And I really find this so strange, you know, I live with my condition, it inconveniences me, but everybody else feels awkward about it around me. Like, it, that doesn't make sense. It's not for you to feel awkward about. Okay, I know we don't have amazing disability representation on our screens, in our books, in our films. Like, we are still living in a time where non-disabled actors play disabled characters and that's seen as okay I get it but I still don't think that's enough of a reason for everyone to just feel so awkward and you know uh, the disability charity scope have actually done research on this and two-thirds of Brits have actively avoided a conversation with a disabled person so first things first I, I you know I would say 
get over your own awkwardness, get over that fear of, I might say the wrong thing, I don't know how to act, like, as a disabled person, you you are not going to be the first person that we encounter uh, that is going to be like that. Um, but you also need to consider that you are massively overlooking a huge pool of talent. Um, and, you know, let's talk about the moral fact here as well. Like, for many of us, having a job is something that is personally fulfilling you know socially economically and professionally um and disabled people face many unavoidable extra costs and then let's add into that disabled people are twice as likely to be unemployed uh when applying for jobs only half of applications result in an interview and nearly half of everyone that lives in poverty in the uk is disabled or lives with a disabled family member Disabled people need to work just as much as everybody else. Probably, I would argue, even more with all these extra costs that we face. And that, you know, it's not a small amount. It's it's £583 a month. So I just think that, especially, you know, now with the impact of COVID, which means disabled people and carers are at least twice as likely to face redundancy than the rest of the working population. Mm. Employers need to wake up to this fact. They need to wake up that wake up to the fact that they are massively overlooking a huge, huge pool of talent. And especially in this space of architecture, why wouldn't you work with and want the skills and knowledge and lived experience of disabled people to design much more accessible places? Um, and I just want to make a point, really, like every space that I occupy, even my own home, it is not accessible. It makes life so much more harder. It constantly puts me at a disadvantage. It gives it gives me so much more. Yeah, disadvantage than it does to other people, like whether that's the flat that I pay a stupid amount of rent for to live in London, mm. whether that. Uh, a workplace and architects are the creators of these spaces you know where we all work live play socialize so yeah I just yeah for me I just can't see why that why people aren't joining the dots. You were speaking you know quite openly there about how architects have the power um, to be able to change spaces, to make them more accessible for people with disabilities. So why wouldn't we um, have more of that voice in the profession? But there is this fear, this fear factor. I mean, how would you advise uh, uh, architects got over that fear? Because that is really what's uh, is a, quite a huge element of thinking they have to do something, they have to make some changes, they, I don't know. How, how do they get over it? I think um, you sort of hit the nail on the head there. In addition to having architects having the power, they also have the responsibility. Um, and look, if 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 something's new or different to you, yes, you know, at first it might feel a little bit awkward. Um, but what we need to do is just look at disability as another characteristic. So for me, just like I have brown hair, I also live with a condition. So as much as a, I don't know, as a big thing you might think it is actually for, for the population of people that live with conditions and impairments, like it's just another, you know, feature. It's just another characteristic that make us who we are. 
So what I would say is there's never been a better time to be disabled. Uh, And people usually give me a puzzled look when I say that. But what I mean by that is, I feel like, again, like back when we had uh, London 2012 and the Paralympics, I feel like disability is having a bit of a moment. Um, You know, we have got amazing programmes on TV, amazing comedians. I absolutely love Rosie Jones. Um, I'm not saying disability representation is there. it's, It's woefully lacking, but it's so much better than what it was. So you need to take it upon yourself to learn about disability, learn about the lives of disabled people and the reality of navigating a world that isn't designed for you. Um, And I also want to say that, you know, disability is the largest diversity strand. It's the largest minority group in the world and anyone can be part of it overnight. Because if we, you know, look at some of the other... um, diversity strands you can't change your race your ethnicity your age uh, even though probably some of us might want to change your age um you know you've got to go through a process to change your gender so a good way of looking at this is that you know we are all pre-disabled that might be permanently temporarily or situational and another way of looking at this is that Essentially, all of us as human beings, we all have abilities and limits to those abilities. Um, So I think the best place would be starting from education, learning about that um, and learning about disability from a much more holistic perspective instead of just focusing on the medical aspects of it. One of the things that I, I like to do here is, and, and actually it is in, in the 10 top tips uh, on the poster that you can receive if you, you fill in um, uh, the form and, and enter the prize draw, by the way. Who are your friends? Asking yourself, who are your friends? Do you know people with disabilities? And when you think about it, I'm sure you do. Uh, and so when you think about that, think about, well, why wouldn't I employ someone like this friend of mine who has this particular condition or, you know, this family member who who goes through this particular um, process or has, has this uh, need? And so um, given that one in five of us uh, have, have got some uh, condition that, that uh, means that we experience disability, it really it shouldn't be that difficult to to find those voices surround yourself with them and listen to those disability voices uh, so that you know you can start to inform yourself and start to take those steps to be um, more cognizant of what what it requires so um, when it when we think about you know this this environment in which we're we're in and, and the fact that we need architects in the built in environment to be listen and also act on those voices that are, are, uh, have a disability experience. What sort of measures do we want people to put in place in order to track their change around this? It's a great question, Marsha. I think um, I want to start by saying that as a rule of, uh, as a general rule, when you solve problems for disabled people, they are solutions that you can extend to many other groups and communities as well. So it's only in, you know, your own best interest. So to help you really get started on that journey, um, you need to think differently. So you need to celebrate difference and capture the importance of diversity in your workplace, behaviours and values. 
Uh, and that's also about promoting accessibility and inclusion and inclusion in, you know in the design of your your services processes and systems and work environment and i think this is the starting point for making the work environment inclusive for everybody and then of course you know there's so much awkwardness about disability we need to start talking openly because changing culture starts with encouraging and supporting your employees to be open when it you know, comes to discussing their uh, impairment or condition, because what you don't want as an employer is is a, is a group of your workforce masking themselves, hiding the fact that they might be living with a condition. Surely you would want them to be set up for success. You would want them to have the right support, the right equipment. And, you know, you would want your employees to stop focusing on not being their true authentic selves and just focus on being productive in their role but that's not going to that's not going to happen people aren't going to feel safe to share this information to confide in certain people in the workplace if if let's say there's no visibility of of diversity or inclusion in your organization if you've never had a conversation on disability, you know, there are so many awareness days. I'm not saying you've all got to share your own personal stories. That's a very, um, it's a very big thing to do. But it's, you know, there's, there's so many ways in which you could do it. But I think championing, you know, everyday inclusion and disability would really help. Uh, and then a couple of other points, I think, you need to be able to lead confidently as well, because clear leadership and accountability uh, for for disability is really important for it to, you know, get on your agenda and for it to maintain focus. And also then you'll be helping to make sure that the people that are applying for jobs with you are getting the right support, because it's all well and good having disabled people uh, come through the door and then join your organisation but it's, it's not always easy for disabled people to stay in a job as well, especially if things like uh, processes change, line managers change, all of that, all of that stuff can really impact um, on, on your experience. And lastly, I just want to say you also need to know how you will measure up because transforming your approach to disability isn't going to change overnight. You know, we are talking about culture change here. So I, I encourage all, you know, organisations, irrespective of what size you are, you know, to find ways to build trust, create a dialogue and track your progress, because that's what's going to help you keep focused and encourage momentum. So, you know, you know you're, you're, um, you've made the point about uh, what does um, you, having clear leadership and accountability. What does clear leadership and accountability look like to you? To me, that would look like appointing a senior champion uh, or somebody from your senior leadership team to be accountable and for them to take the responsibility of, of uh, disability inclusion. Because once it's there at their senior level it stays on that high level agenda then there's less risk of it just slipping down the priority list so to me that's what that looks like but also and I guess stepping away from disability specifically but more inclusion lens focus we need to learn inclusive behaviors off one another sometimes we need to be very explicit about what inclusive behavior looks like because we might not have had good examples of that and I think that should come from obviously everybody but must 
must be behaviours that, you know, your senior uh, leadership teams have or, or, you know, your senior champion. So for me, that's what I would be looking at doing. And uh, you talked about building trust as well. I mean, that 1% of uh, the 68 of, of registered architects with the ARB declaring that they have uh, lived experience of disability, um, there may be something there about how um, people feel that they can't say, uh, uh, you know, out, out of those who do declare their data. So, so what, needs, what needs to change for current architects to feel that they can be upfront if they if they've got an experience of disability um this is a, a really um it's a broad area really this so it's so complex so essentially what we're asking to do what we're asking people to do by sharing their information is is label themselves and as we know disability is a label and not everybody wants to be associated with that label. If you had met the 20 year old version of me, I wanted nothing to do with disability until I learned about the social model of disability, which talks about, you know, we live in a disabling world and it's not my condition that disables me. It's it's the world around me and society. So what we have to recognize is that everybody is on a different, um, everybody's on a journey when it comes to, you know, managing your condition or your impairment. And everyone's at a different stage of that journey. And if I'm being truthfully honest, I don't think a lot of disabled people have disability pride. You know, it's tough. It's really tough being a disabled person. It's tough Um, not getting the support that you need. It's tough seeing that things you probably asked for uh, pre-pandemic were just given to everybody overnight because it suited the majority you know, take, for example, remote or flexible working, you know, I think disabled people are so frustrated at the fact that things that we've been asking for for many, for many years, and we were always told no, and for some reason, that's a reason they couldn't work, then suddenly, because it suited the majority, and, you know, what was deemed as a majority, it was, you know, these changes happened very quickly in society. Um so there's, what I'm saying is there's a lot to consider here. Um, I would look at actually how you ask the question and what you do with that information as well, because are you really interested as an employer about what people's medical history is? Because you shouldn't be. What you should be focusing on is what are the barriers that you're experiencing from you doing your role and how can we remove them? And I think that's why many approaches to disability inclusion fail, because I think people feel that they need to be an expert in certain conditions and impairments. Obviously, it's great to have some basic knowledge, but we have medical professionals for that. That There's a time and place that, you know, we deal with that side of that stuff. But when we're in workplaces, we just need to work with open-minded uh, employers and leaders to help us understand um, how we can remove the barriers that are getting in our way just from getting on in our roles. We're talking to Shani Danda, the award-winning disability specialist and former RIBA staff member, about the issues and concerns around disability as part of our CQ knowledge. And you made a really, really powerful point there before we went to um, a Beautiful by Christina Aguilera about how overnight click 
we snap. We were able to put in accommodations that people have been asking for forever. The 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 changes, the adaptations, if they're needed, they're not difficult, really, are they? No, and I think there's a really big misconception that um, you know adjustments or. Oh, for any sort of flexibility that people might need, maybe because of a disability, you know, is really costly, it's difficult, you've got to redesign a whole building. And you know what, that's not the case at all. And many of the organisations that I've worked with, uh, supporting them with disability inclusion, I have to say the majority of the adjustments or, um, you know, flexibility, it's never costed it's not cost anything. It, it's all, it's mainly been the flexibility side of stuff, you know? Um, so yeah, I think there's so many different myths uh, that we have as well when we think about employing disabled people. Um, so yeah. What other myths are there? So there's been a lot of research, you know, carried out around the topic of disability and employment over the years. Uh, and it's concluded in the fact that disabled people um, overall are reliable because we take fewer days off, we take less sick leave and we stay in jobs longer than other workers. We are productive once in the right position and with the correct support. We perform as well or better as other employees. And we're affordable because recruitment costs are lower due to less turnover. And the, as I said, you know, the majority of adjustments are low cost or cost nothing at all. And we're safe because we're no more likely to be injured at work than any other employee. And finally, we're good for business because we're reflecting the customers uh, and the communities that we serve. Um, and people just prefer to work for more inclusive organisations. And I, I think this really highlights the point that, you know, when we think of disability, the first thing that pops into many people's mind is ramps and wheelchairs well actually out of the 14 million disabled people that we have in the UK 70% live with non-visible conditions or impairments and only 1.2 million disabled people are wheelchair users it's still a significant amount but even the symbol that we have to represent disability, which is a wheelchair user, even that isn't, you know, overly representative of this, you know, hugely diverse community. And so, um, you know, architects, as we know, quite crucial, as and you've made the point, in, in trying to design a world, design spaces um, and ensure not only architects as well, but the rest of the built environment that yeah. we can be inclusive as possible. That point that you make about having that voice within your workplace, within your organisation, within your firm, can be the difference between being inclusive in what you do as well, the products and services of architecture um, uh, you know, and, and not doing that. Isn't that the case, Shani? Absolutely. And I think you can only reach that point when you've got that lived experience around you and you're able to tap into that community. You know, it, if you perhaps don't have disabled people in your practice, go out and speak to them. You get do a focus group to get your, you get your things tested and you know, go and speak to the communities that you're going to be serving. And, and quite often it is going to be disabled people. 
Now, you've been involved in something very particular, the, the D- Disability Employment Charter that's gone to government. Can you explain a little bit more about that? What, what is that and, and what do you hope to achieve with that? Sure. So um, you might know that uh, early this year, the government announced their long-awaited national disability strategy. Um, and it was a bit lacklustre, to, to say the least. You know, we were promised this big plan with solid with a solid action plan um but because you know the disability employment crisis is only getting bigger and bigger and and it's not really improving um disabled people uh, disabled people as long as disability charities and the organizations have come together now uh, and and put together this charter um, to help lobby the government to get to, to make this a, a, a mandatory requirement. So it's, it's essentially a call for the government to act and it, it proposes a set of vital measures uh, that if, if they're implemented in a certain manner, that they would substantially shift the dial on disability employment. And I, I really do urge everybody to, to go and look it up. And, you know, if you feel you're able to, to support the charter, put your name against it as an organisation, but another thing is it's a, it's a really good starting point. It's brilliant insight for any business out there and what action they can take straight away. What, what does the charter say then? Uh, so there's nine points to the charter. Um, and I think for me, the most important one is um, about employment and pay gap reporting. So you may or may not be aware that uh, the disability pay gap is so wide that disabled people effectively work two months of the year for free. Now, I don't know many people that would voluntarily work two months of the year for free. Uh, and then when you layer further um, characteristics on top of that, let's say, you know, ethnicity and gender, the gap just gets even wider and wider and wider. So uh, the Tata. Um, wants the government to require all employers with over 250 employees to publish data annually on the number of disabled people they employ, um, as well as the disability pay gap. Um, And and there's other things in the charter as well, such as um, workplace adjustment, you know, working with disabled people and their representatives. And um, again, if you don't know, there's something called access to work, which is a discretionary government grant. Uh, which helps disabled people get in and stay into work. It's, it's absolutely open to everybody. I think it's the government's best kept secret. If you don't know about it, if there's one thing you take away from this conversation, please go and look up access to work, whether you're an employer or a disabled person, and go and tell your disabled friends about it as well. Like, it is it's a brilliant scheme. What, what does uh, it yeah, do? It, it's, it's a nine-point action plan, essentially. What, what does the um, access to work scheme do if I can ask that yeah so access to work um it can help sort of facilitate things like any adjustments that are needed and the cost of it um so that you know that might be so so for me for example when I worked at Reba I used access to work and they provided me with a a bespoke chair uh, a footstool and um keyboard um so they they really help it's personalized support 
and it, it tailors it, you know, the support to every different individual's need. And it, it just takes a bit of the, the pressure off the employers as well. So, so really, there is no excuse. No excuse. There. You, mm. You've got government support there to get disabled people in, whether that's, you know, for interview or for jobs, that there's really no excuse. So what other places can people go to look to find the kind of resources and support that they need as an organisation to take the actions that you would recommend? That's a great question. So there are several key organisations and networks that can help uh, you get going and, and support you wherever you might be on your disability inclusion journey. The first one I want to call out is um, is Westcope, and the community is called Work With Me. And that's a network of businesses that support each other in becoming more inclusive for disabled people. It's free to join and to access the library of resources. Uh, the next one is Evenbreak, and that's a specialist job site that connects disabled um, job seekers with dis- disability-friendly and inclusive employers. Um, there's also uh, something called the Disability Confidence Scheme. That's a government scheme and that helps employers make the most of the opportunities uh, provided by employing disabled people. And what it means is disabled people have a list of all the organisations in the UK that are disability confident employers. Now, this is something that I personally look for if if I'm or if I was ever applying for work. Um, so it's something that you should be part of. It also gives you an action plan of things to do. And also, you know, I just mentioned access to work. And, you know, finally, you can contact me um, and, and see how I might be able to help you as well, because I do understand the industry too. You're listening to Reba Radio. Real inclusive, brilliant action. Brilliant action.